We're going to jump right into our passage. It's Mark chapter 2. We are talking about the good news demonstrated. We are still in the Beautiful Feet series. We've got four more weeks of that. We're going to look at the good news, the gospel demonstrated. And for the next four weeks, including today, we're going to see how that was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. There is nobody better to preach about than Jesus. So let's jump right into the passage. Chapter 2, verse 1, no story, no illustration. We're going right to the Word of God. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now you ready? I'm going to give you a lot of backdrop. I'm going to set the stage for you. You're going to thoroughly understand the Jewish mindset of this chapter by the time that we are finished. We're we're talking about Capernaum. This is where Jesus has returned. It's the largest fishing town on the Sea of Galilee, all the way up north, a little bit west. It's a mile and a half long village. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles tall. It is seven and a half miles wide. If you want a little perspective, well, think of two of our local lakes. You've got Lake Nakamixon. At seven miles long, it averages a quarter to a half a mile wide. And then you've got Lake Wallenpawpak. That is 13 miles long. At its very widest, it's one mile. And it's Pennsylvania's third largest lake. We've got the Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake, 13 miles tall, eight miles wide. You've got this little fishing village called Capernaum. 1,500 people live there, stretches, as I told you, along the northern shore a mile and a half. Jesus, by the way, grew up in Nazareth, but when he launched his ministry, did you know that he moved to Capernaum? Matthew chapter 4 tells us this, and leaving Nazareth, it's where he grew up, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun, and Naphtali. So you may already be learning something. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He's now living, that's his home, in Capernaum. In fact, it's where Peter was called to be a disciple. Andrew, John, James, remember Matthew or Levi the tax collector? All five of them lived in this village. They all lived in this region and they were all called by Jesus to follow him. So here we go, Mark chapter 2, we've already begun it. Jesus is at home, verse 1. He was given a place to stay. That's often the custom for the rabbis. It says, he said later that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He didn't own a home. He was given a room in a home. And you need to know that homes in Capernaum, they consisted usually, almost always, of three or four single-story rooms that would surround a central courtyard, and they had walls made of basalt field stones, so round or flat stones. That's what their walls were made of. They didn't have well-dressed blocks of stones, not in this village. And they had roofs, and those roofs were not angled. They weren't pitched like ours mostly are. They were flat. They were commonly made from wooden beams that would stretch wall to wall, usually two to three feet apart. And then across those beams were sticks and reeds. 
And then they were all covered by a mixture of grain and twigs and straw and dirt and mud, usually till you get two feet thick. This is what their roofs were made out of, two feet of dirt, mud, grain, twigs, straw, and it would pack it, they would pack it down with stone rollers. They actually rolled these round rollers. They would pack it down until it was incredibly tight. This is how they waterproofed their homes. And over all of that, sometimes, were laid hard-baked tiles. In fact, Luke in this story tells us that they removed the tiles. So this house had tiles. And if it didn't have tiles, they would let grass, they would actually plant grass up on their roofs and that would grow in the springtime. It would help to cool the interior. Now here's what's interesting. Remember I told you that there's three or four single-story rooms surrounding a courtyard? They would build a staircase on the, in the inside of the courtyard alongside one of the walls, and that's how you would gain access to the roofs. And that was really important. Why? Well, they used the roof for their social gatherings. It was too hot to be inside of a stuffy, poorly ventilated home. So they would often go up on the roof to eat. They would go up there in the evening to catch the cool breeze. They would sleep up there in the summer. They would dry their fruit and they would dry their flax so that they can make clothing. All of this was up on the roof. Now, with all that background, let's get back and let's look at our first point. We're going to look at the terrible life of a sufferer, and then we're going to look at the beautiful feet of our Savior. Okay, I gave you all that background so we can really get rolling. Chapter 2, verse 2, you ready? Here we go. Word of God. And many were gathered together in that home where Jesus was, verse 1, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So there was... Out the door audience. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. All through the gospels we see pictures of suffering people. I mean just think about it for a moment. You remember that widowed mother in Luke chapter 7. The little town of Nain whose only child dies young. Do you remember that leper? leper there, actually, there were several of them that would come and they would drop on their knees before Jesus and beg him to clean them. Everybody else was driving them away as an outcast. Jesus put his hand on them often and cleaned them and healed them. Remember the blind men, the lame boy, the deaf people, the demon-possessed people. They're all through the Gospels. One after another, we see the landscape of suffering people. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If we... We're just start right here in this sanctuary right now. And we really got into the lives of everybody here. You're going to see picture after picture of one form or suffering or another. And if we leave this building and we just start walking around Easton, you're going to encounter people one after another who are suffering. This entire world is full of people who are suffering. So I want you to hear something that I'm about to tell you with your ears wide open. You've got to really get what I'm going to tell you because it's going to help you understand why the good news of the gospel goes as deep as it does. The good news of Jesus goes deeper 
than the level of earthly suffering. It goes through it, but it goes deeper. It never ignores it. The good news of Jesus never ignores suffering. Listen, you're not living the gospel if you see suffering and you're unmoved by it and you ignore it. That's not Jesus living in you. That would be your flesh. That would be my flesh. It never ignores suffering, but it goes a lot deeper because earthly suffering paints a deeper problem. All suffering reveals the awful, terrible effects of what sin does in God's creation. I'm going to say that again, and then I'll explain it. All suffering reveals the awful, terrible effects of what sin does in God's creation. Sin blinds your eyes. It blinds your eyes spiritually. It mutes our praise to God. It brings spiritual and then eventual physical death. Sin brings shame. It deafens us to the words of God. It paralyzes us from living life as it should be lived. Suffering is not natural. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's not a natural product of creation. It is a purely abnormal res- result of the fall. Now, you really need to know that because that might actually be surprising to some of us. Suffering is not a natural product of God's creative act. It is an unnatural result of sin. You may be aware that our county, Northampton, a lot of counties actually right now in Pennsylvania, we're under a quarantine for the spotted lanternfly. Did you know that? I'm sure you've read this on the news it's known to be incredibly destructive to fruit trees and orchards, grape vineyards. The fly, however, is not native to Pennsylvania. It was introduced to our area from parts of Asia. Similarly, I'm using that example to show you sin is not native to God's creation. Suffering was not part of God's great work. It was brought into this creation. It was brought in by Adam and Eve. So let me remind you of what the gospel is. Now, some of you right now are, are, I would imagine, are saying to yourself, man, this is boring. I sure hope he picks up his game. (laughs) It's got to get picked up, but you got to understand the foundation. you got to get the theology before you get the practical way that it plays out. I'm going to show you this chart again. I showed it to you, I think, the first or second week of this series. God created a perfect world. It's not a a result of some explosion of particles. I mean, listen, if God created this by using a big bang explosion of his power, I have no problem with that. As long as you can understand that God created it. God brought everything out of nothing. Whatever exploded, if that's what it was, or if he just brought it into us by his word, that's what he did. He spoke it into existence. If he did it through an explosion, I don't have a problem with that. But he brought everything into existence out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Latin way of saying that. But he created a perfect world. He formed it. He fashioned it so that it imaged him. In fact, I'm going to put it this way. Every square inch of creation was saturated with glory of God. 
But Adam and Eve did. I'm going to tell you what you and I would have done. They disobeyed. And when they disobeyed, they fell into sin and they brought sin into creation. And where every square inch was formerly saturated by the glory of God, now, listen, every square inch has been broken, distorted, affected by sin. And particularly, the human soul. So what, or more accurately, who will set humanity free from the power and the penalty of sin. Now listen, all of the good news of the gospel starts right there. Who's going to set us free from this body of sin? Who's going to help us live the way that God wants us to live? We can't do it in our effort. Well, that person who does that is our Redeemer. His name is Jesus And he came to ransom prisoners of sin and suffering. And he continues to restore this broken world. And he will ultimately consummate his restoration on his return. When he remakes this heaven and this earth. And he judges all humanity. And he ushers us either into one of two destinations. Either into the eternal glory of the presence of God or eternal suffering of hell. Now, I shared that with you for two reasons. One of, one of the reasons is you ought to be writing that chart down. This is a super simple way to explain this on a napkin at a diner. This is how you can explain the overarching story that is woven all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And the entire Bible is located in this chart. The second reason, however, that I'm showing you this chart is that you can, in your mind, begin to understand that this is exactly what Jesus came to do. We're about to see the good news demonstrated in Jesus to a paralyzed man. And he's desperate. He's paralyzed. He has four friends that carry him on a mattress. It says in some texts, on a mat. That Greek word is a mattress. They carry him on a mattress to the house or the home where Jesus was living. His home base where he was preaching on this day. And you get to verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now this is pretty sad, isn't it? No one in that crowd would move. No one had compassion. So the four friends came up with a plan. Somebody had to go run and get a pickaxe. Somebody had to go get some shovels. Somebody had to go get ropes. I don't think they brought any of those tools with them. They ran to get the material. They come back and they grab the four corners of that mattress and they start going up that courtyard staircase that is built along the interior wall and they get to the roof and they begin to dig through it and they lower the friend down. Now I want you to imagine this. Get your holy imagination going. You can hear them up on the roof if you're down and below. If you're in that room, I'm sure they heard footsteps. Come on, they had to hear the pickaxe breaking through those tiles. They had to hear all of this 
while Jesus was preaching, can you imagine he's preaching and little bits of debris begin to fall down, likely on his head. They lower him right at his feet. In fact, Mark says they removed the roof. You know what that means literally in the Greek? It means they unroofed the roof. They did violence to the roof. They are destroying this roof. And chunks now are falling before Jesus. The men are digging furiously. I can imagine they're not taking their time. The owner of the house is going to be running up those stair- that staircase to stop them. They are destroying his house. You know, I, I really absolutely, and I, I'm telling you this from being a, a speaker, a public speaker. I'm absolutely sure that Jesus finally just gave up preaching at this point. Nobody's listening to him. I mean, this is what you do when you're speaking, and you've got something. I've had two people completely pass out in a service before. You just stop preaching. Call an ambulance. We'll finish the sermon next week, or if we can get back to it later. I mean, babies crying, you've got children being restless. There's some point where you aren't listening to me anymore. I can never compete with a beautiful baby. Well, I know Jesus. I absolutely am confident. He finally just stopped preaching. Things are dropping from the ceiling. There's daylight now poking through the roof. There's no way he kept preaching. The friends open a large hole between those beams. Remember, two to three feet between those beams. They lower their friend by ropes on a mattress down between the beams. They settle him on the floor. I'm sure, I'm just imagining this, that the paralyzed man is looking up into the face of Jesus with a sheepish grin on his face. And I am absolutely convinced Jesus is looking at him with the biggest smile you could possibly imagine. He loves faith. Faith makes him happy. He is at the beautiful feet, literally, of the Savior, which is point number two. What's going to happen? Well, you know the end of the story, but there's a whole lot we need to understand. And when Jesus saw their faith, all five of them, the four on the roof, the one at the, on the floor, the paralyzed man. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith, which undoubtedly included the paralyzed man. He's helplessly, helplessly on the ground. He's looking up in the face of Jesus. And for all five of those men, all their hopes are pinned on Jesus. They needed a miracle of healing, but Jesus knew This man needed something a whole lot more than just physical healing. Now, I want you to understand now the Jewish mindset. You ready? The rabbis had a saying. It went like this. There is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. That was a saying popular In the time of Jesus. I quoted it verbatim. There is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. You see, the Jewish people had a sin-sickness theology. Meaning that sickness was always God's response to your sin. To your personal sin. By the way, some of you have this. Because the moment something goes bad in your day, your mind clicks. What did I do wrong? Where did I sin? 
That is a sin sickness theology. And traces of it are in a lot of us. And at times it could be true. I mean, after all, if you've got years of drunkenness, don't be surprised if it yields a, a, a cancer diagnosis in your liver. If you're a pathological liar, then you don't be surprised if you're going to keep getting divorces. And if you are living in unforgiveness, don't be surprised if you are saddled with depression. So there are sicknesses that do correspond to our personal sin. Yet not all suffering comes from personal sins as the rabbis taught. All suffering, now listen, all suffering, however, comes from the fact that sin has come into creation. The good news targets that sin. Whether it's personal sin or ultimate sin, every bit of suffering, everybody that dies, is, it's happening because of ultimate sin, and in some rare cases, personal sin. I mean, John did say in one of his epistles, there is a sin that will lead to death. So if you're sinning heinously, and you will not repent, over and over God warns you, it's the kindness of God that leads you to, re to repentance, and you will not heed his warning, John says in one of his epistles, well there is a sin that will lead to your death. Jesus came to live, die, and be raised to life to deal with the penalty and the power of sin. And he does it by his grace and mercy. Now I'm going to teach you, and I want you to write it down if you would. I want to teach you how to define grace and mercy the right way. You've got pop theological definitions. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Those are wonderful. They they work well in a flyby conversation, but they don't get down to the real power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me get you there. God's grace, write it down, God's grace is his willingness to take away the penalty of sin through the sacrifice of Christ. Please remember this. You must learn this. Always the grace of God targets the sin of mankind. Always. There is a biblical trajectory of the grace of God that is always heading toward and will always hit the sin of humanity. Your sin, my sin. Mercy is different. Mercy is God's willingness to begin to defeat the power and the damage that our sin has caused us. Not just us, but the people around us. So God's mercy always targets the damage that our sins have created. His grace always targets the sin itself. That's a lot different than the pop definitions. And we're about to see both the grace and the mercy of Jesus, the good news, the beautiful feet of Jesus, displayed with this paralyzed man. Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is his grace. He's targeting the man's sins. He's saying to everybody that's there, if you're going to believe that all sickness comes from personal sin, then I will remove that sin first and I'm going to display my divine grace. He's, 
He's going along. Listen, if you've got a sin-sickness nexus or a sin-sickness theology, all right, I'll follow along with that for a moment. I don't agree with it. But if you think that this man's paralyzed because of personal sin, then I'm going to target his sin first. I'm going to remove it. I'm going to show you what divine grace looks like. And the proof that I removed his sin is going to be seen as I heal him of his misery. For I came to remove the penalty and defeat the power of sin. And you're going to see my divine mercy. Here's how Jesus is going to do it for the paralytic. Same way he does it for you and I. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the Gospel. And he is saying to, to this man and to all of his hearers, My death for your sins will bring you eternal life. You know what it's like for this man? Now listen, I'm going to put it into a modern metaphor for you. He's given this man, this paralyzed man, a credit card. A divine cosmic credit card. He's handing it to him. Saying, listen, I'm going to pay for your sins right now. You can go ahead and swipe your card through the blood of my, my own blood. Because pretty soon I'm going to die on the cross for you. So you're going to buy your forgiveness now through my sacrifice that I'm going to offer in just another year or two. You see what he's doing? He's forgiving this man on the basis of his death, his life, death, and resurrection. And it hasn't happened yet. This is how Abraham was saved. This is how Moses was saved. How did they get saved in the Old Testament? Romans 4 says they believed and it was credited to them as righteousness. They had a credit card that God gave them. You can get it now. It'll be paid for later on the cross when the Messiah comes. You see how that works? See, now you're given an ATM. You're given a debit card. You can swipe that thing every single time that guilt comes back into your soul. And you can remember, wait a minute, I've got an unlimited currency in my bank account of my soul. And it was dropped into there, deposited in there through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am going to swipe the ATM and that shame and that guilt, the devil's trying to whisper it into me. It is gone. It has been paid for every single sin. And I'm going to swipe it and I'm going to swipe it until I remember who I am in Christ. I am free. Because of the power of the good news. Amen. Jesus is saying all of this to this man and all of his hearers. My death for your sins is going to bring you eternal life. And he begins with his grace to take away his sin. He's going to continue in his mercy to deal with the damage that sin, whether it's personal or ultimate, has caused. And he says in verse 11, I say to you, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. Well, here's a problem. There's some rabbis there. They're scribes. They're Jewish experts in the law. And they had come from every village, verse uh, Luke 5, 17 says, come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Do you know how far it was 
from Jerusalem down in the south all the way up to Capernaum in the north. It was 80 miles. Now you're thinking, well, that's not that big of a deal. Except they walked. Which would be like you leaving tomorrow morning from downtown Easton, walking our roads until you get to Wilmington, Delaware, 80 miles away. And the Jewish people reckoned a day's journey as being 25 miles. So that would take you three days. So they, some of these scribes came all the way from Jerusalem. And they were coming to find this Jesus because they're hearing about him. And they're sitting there while everybody else is standing room only. That tells you a lot. It was Jewish custom for the teacher to sit. So the one who's sitting, the one who's sitting is on a low pillow or a chair. And everybody else would be sitting on the floor, which is why the phraseology, sitting at the feet of the rabbi, came into being. In fact, you see it from the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 22. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated, look what he says, at the feet of Gamaliel. That was rabbinical language. When the rabbi was teaching, he sat on a, on a pillow or a chair. You sat on the floor like Mary and Martha's home, and you listened. It was a demonstration of a yielded heart to someone whose authority was higher than yours. It's a posture of humility. That was not the attitude of the scribes. There's no indication they're sitting on the floor. In fact, they're taking up a lot of floor space by sitting where everybody else was standing. On the contrary, they sat there in judgment of Jesus, and their verdict was immediate. They were stunned. They were furious. Their unspoken verdict was blasphemy, which was a verdict that was punishable by stoning to death. This is what they would lay on him, that verdict, the night of his betrayal with the Sanhedrin. And they were adamant, verse 7, Mark chapter 2, who can forgive sins but God alone? And guess what? They had right theology. They're correct. Only God can forgive sins. And it's the point that Jesus is going to prove. He is God. But first, he's going to give them a theology lesson. Look what he says in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's a title. In fact, listen, that was the favorite title that Jesus gave to himself. He said it 81 times in the gospel, Gospels. Son of man, son of man, son of man. Why is that significant? You've got to go all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel is prophesying. He's telling you about the future. He's telling us about what's going to happen. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man, who will be coming, will be sent by God, and he will have all kingdoms put below his feet. They will be a footstool for his feet. Jesus is the Son of Man. He has dominion. He has glory forever. And here's what Daniel is saying. He is God. He is God in human flesh. 
and his grace and his mercy to forgive sin and to heal this man from the consequences of sin will be the evidence of his divinity. But the scribes can't see it. Do you recall, if you were here, the first sermon of this series, a reason why it's called Beautiful Feet? Taken from Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who publishes salvation. We're about to see just how beautiful the feet of Jesus are. In fact, there is something we need to see from Mark chapter 1, verse 34 for a moment. Can you skip back there? Mark chapter 1, verse 34. Just go backward a little bit. It was just before this that Jesus was also in Capernaum. When all the sick and all the demon-possessed, the Bible says, were brought to him. And he healed many sufferers that evening. So, he, so all of Capernaum empties all of their sick, all of their demon-possessed, all of them. The Greek word all means all, and that's all it all means. They bring them all to Jesus, and he heals many of them. He goes to bed that night. He gets up super early in the morning before any of the disciples. The disciples wake up. They cannot find him. They go out into the woods where he's praying to his father, and they said, Jesus, there's more people. They're coming back to the door of Peter's house. There's more people that need help. And what does Jesus say? You ready? Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Now, if you've got a big, giant streak of the social gospel going through you, you're not, you're not really going to like this. Because the social gospel says we've got to all be about the work of the gospel. And they're partly true. Except the work of the gospel is always subordinate, or the evidence rather, of the authority of the gospel. The preeminent ministry is preaching and teaching, proclaiming and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus came to do. And the primary ministry of Jesus was preaching. It wasn't healing. He was more focused on eternal suffering than he was earthly suffering. I mean, how terrible would it be if Jesus gave this paralytic back the movement of his body only for a few decades later he dies and spends eternity in hell? That's not what Jesus is about. So we've got to fix our minds now on this truth. Any ministry of good works that focuses more on the earthly need than the eternal need is not modeling the example of Jesus. And if you're going to do it, you're going to do it without his power. No, the grace of Jesus will aim at this man's heart before his mercy restores his body. And to prove to their sin sickness thinking that he can forgive sins. Look what he says in verse 10. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. Saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus is God. This man is forgiven. His body is restored. He received his grace and now he had his mercy. 
And he's going to die one day, this paralytic, and he's going to enjoy an eternity with God. And there will never be another moment that he will suffer again. Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a uh, Christian author and quadriplegic, she said what I'm going to read to you on a radio show. She, got, she was paralyzed from her neck down, 17 years old, diving into a lake, hit a stump with her head. Just about died there, but they rescued her out. She's been a paraplegic, quadriplegic rather since. Listen to what she said on this radio show. I'm quoting I always say that in a way I hope I could take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, I always say jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. Suffering, friends, can move you to lean on God and discover just how strong he is. Jesus saw their faith, this man's included, and he said, Yes, I will mercifully heal you, but my grace wants more than that. I want you to be saved. And I want to conclude this message with three brief takeaways that I'm going to ask you to really think on. First, the power of God to transform lives comes by the word of God. Will you please anchor that into your mind? There is no ministry, whether it's a personal ministry or a church ministry, that can be effective without the proclamation of God's word ever. And while the masses in Israel were clamoring for miracles from Jesus, he kept bringing them back over and over and over to his message. In fact, miracles only serve to confirm the word of God. Acts, or Mark chapter 16, and the disciples went out and preached everywhere. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. If you ever see a miracle, I'm going to tell you its purpose. It was only to confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the greatest need of all people is peace with God through the death, resurrection of Jesus. And beautiful feet are those that bring the message to them. Let me give you the second takeaway. Religious people can be the biggest obstacle preventing other people from getting to know Jesus. This is a bit convicting. Christians, sometimes we don't move for anyone. We expect people to adjust to our music, our programs, to clean up their act before we will open the arms of mercy to them. 
And I want to ask you, is the way that you live your life a contradiction to your claim to be a Christian? Are you reliable? Is your word true? Is your speech pure? Are your eyes where they should be? Sometimes we could be the biggest obstacle because our witness is so terrible. Are you following after Christ? Are you yielded to him? Or are you more like the scribes? playing a wait and see, more angry than enamored with them. There's a lot of Christians that I know that are so angry with God, they are absolutely useless to them. And I believe that for many of us, this event speaks to the need for even our own repentance as Christians. I want to give you one more takeaway. When is the last time that you were desperate to get someone to Jesus. Uh, come on, think. When's the last time that you were desperate to get someone to Jesus? Man, the four friends demolished a roof to get their friend to Jesus. What do you need to do in order for the same thing to happen to your friend or your loved one? And perhaps it's a risk to your reputation. They certainly did. Maybe it was a risk from their rejection. Maybe it's going to cost you time and effort. Maybe require tremendous sacrifice for you and your family. But are you willing to take that risk? Are you willing to make that sacrifice? Are you willing to pay the cost to bring that person to Jesus? At your work, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, even the hardest place of all, in your families. Are you supremely confident in the priority of God's word? Are you a means and not an obstacle for people to find Christ? And are you desperate and loving and willing to risk whatever the cost to make it happen? You'll know Mark 2 is living in you if that's you. Because that's the good news of Jesus. Amen.